Freetopia Urgently optimistic discussions with experts about the technological risks and opportunities shaping our future. Welcome, Glenn, to, to Pretopia. So it's pre utopia dystopia. Hopefully, we'll make it utopia. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't want to get like the full bio. I think that'll be boring because yeah. you've done so many podcasts, I yeah, guess. Yeah, yes. But what I am curious about is so you are not an anarchist, you are an economist, and you are a techno optimist. So, how would you describe yourself in a couple of lines? I would say I'm a techno agentist. I think that the future of technology is ours to determine and that we're heading in some pretty dark directions, but we have the chance to make something much better together. So I'm neither an optimist nor a pessimist. But if I had to give a political descriptor of myself, I think probably uh, radical pluralist, radical pluralist maybe is what I would say in non-radical exchange terms or just radical exchange. Okay, okay, the non-buzzword version. And so it is a future that involves many people. Yes. Absolutely, and many people contributing to value rather than uh, a small elite. Uh, so um, today we'll talk about radical action as a movement, and now we're in Berlin. We have this unconference. Uh, Ocean is also there, but uh, we'll maybe talk a little bit about data sovereignty. But I wanted to start with something that I think we talked about in our prep talk. So we had this other call before, yeah. and as a question, I would ask it like. How do we unbreak democracy with technology? Yeah, so I think the problem is that democracy is both something that we imagine and aspire to. It's a goal. Um, it's something that we feel in maybe small communities that we make decisions together. And it's like a set of formal mechanisms, uh, formal institutions, political parties and voting and so forth. And while democracy is a great thing to aspire to, it's not necessarily very well instantiated in the formal institutions that we have. And uh, those formal institutions, I think, if you take them to logical extremes, often get even worse. So um, I was just in Italy uh, hanging out with some of the folks from the Five Star Movement, wow. which is interesting. And it was an experiment in direct democracy, but because it took very, very seriously, particular protocols from democracy, lots of majoritarian voting, yeah. things didn't go necessarily how they hoped. Um, but I think that we have the potential by doing more sophisticated thinking and experimentation about what democracy could mean to, um, to really build the democracies that work better than the systems that have developed. So I've actually listened to a couple of your podcasts and yeah. one of them you were mentioning this challenge. Whenever in a democracy, when there's a minority involved and you can't actually solve a get a consensus by voting, you have to resort to some legalese, effectively yeah. an oracle mechanism, yeah. right? So th the thing I was thinking is like, have you thought about this as an information asymmetry between you know, an average person and the, enterprise, uh, the, the existing establishment? Yeah, I think obviously there is a big problem in democracy that it um, doesn't account for expertise or unusual degrees of interest or importance for certain people. However, 
the solution to that which just says let's bring in an oracle let's just bring in the judges let's just bring in some external process is deeply inegalitarian and does violence to the basic idea of democracy so the question is can we actually have a way that's egalitarian and open and democratic for expertise and minority interests to nonetheless emerge and that's one of the oldest questions i think we've made some real progress on that with some of the radical exchange ideas at the same time it's only one of many of the failure modes of existing democracy and i don't think we're at the end of trying to address those so i'm happy to talk about some of the others so if i could jump in we, we had this chat right now before we trend and uh, I mentioned this idea, which was like just a renaming of, I think, ISD, right? Uh, so Intersectional social data. How, how do you call it? ISSD? ISD. ISD, okay. So basically what we're doing is we're adding more dimensionality and more depth and breadth to data, right? Yeah. And so what I'm wondering is what substrate would you use? I know that's an open question right now. But we say, uh, I think it was also from yourself, uh, we, we use tele telegraph as a technology when you know, our current systems were invented. Now we have internet, we have blockchains, we have you know, IoT and everything. But uh, there is so much bandwidth, but you can't actually keep up with that speed of you know, information. So how do you find the compromise, the right compromise, when you have such a you know, high dimensional space for information to not just you know, overload the system with uh, too much information? So there's also an opposite side. Um, yeah. that's, that's my question. Well, I think um, we would like to, if possible, keep as much of a balance between the dimensionality of the information that ordinary people are able to interact with and that which um, a small elite with access to a lot of capital can interact with. So I think that that requires us both to pare back those large data repositories and to expand the access to uh, data and the control and, and interface with data that ordinary people have. And I'd like to see that eventually happen through replacing tokens like identity and money with something so that's like sort of end, end by end dimensional, where every person's relationship with others sort of is stored and belongs to them. I mean, this pretty much, uh, you know, runs into one of the questions I wanted to ask. Yeah. I mean, in, in our previous conversation, we were discussing this question about identities. And you are also discussing, and pretty much now we're discussing this half-life problem as well. Yeah. So you have like a multi-dimensional situation where you have like a, a n by n metrics of some kind, n by n dimensional thing, yeah. and you have uh, you know a set of large entities with large resources have the ability to create this uh, you know information asymmetry where they have a massive gain over an average person, yeah. and then we have this governance situation where we want to actually balance this out so we can actually have a, a you know mechanism that's similar to democracy to work, right? Yeah. So uh, how do you see this happening? As in, as a, in the sense like, you know, think about Google, you know, the data mode is simply impossible to overcome in near future, right? Yeah. And we are just building uh, small steps towards literally, you know, getting the governance in place. How do you think, you know, what will happen? Well, I think change happens in two ways. Um, 
Um, and they need to have, go together. On the one hand, you have to restrain the worst excesses of existing systems. And on the other hand, you need to build new systems to bubble up underneath them. So a classic example of this from tech was that the antitrust case against Microsoft, my employer, uh, kept them busy and allowed new systems to build up that eventually supplanted Microsoft. So without the entrepreneurship, that wouldn't have happened. And without the antitrust case, it probably wouldn't have happened either. Thanks. Well, <laughs> that was great, actually. So I, I wanted to go back to IST a little bit. And you did talk about money also eventually being represented in a you know hybrid way a, as a new system, right? Uh, so do you, have you thought about uh, how it would look like? Because we were starting to have so many currencies and tokens. Uh, but there's this issue that how do you actually value that? Yeah. The, the good thing about dollar is one dollar is one dollar. And then yeah. you have like a million dollars, different dollars. Well, I think that the answer is you don't have a global value on it. You have a variety of local trust relations that mediate people relating to each other. You don't attempt to have a global state. I think it's very ironic. Uh, Sebastiano, um, a friend in, in Italy, Scorfino, he yesterday said, it's really ironic that people in the blockchain world talk about a global state when they hate states. <laughs> Isn't that w a little bit yeah, weird, it right? Is, it is. And, and so I, I, I think what we need is precisely not a global state. Instead, what we need, there's, there, there is no global value. There is the value to a variety of different communities of, at different levels of organization. And it's that pluralism that I think needs to supplant a simple individualistic or global notion of value. It's a pluralism of substrates in a way and, and ecosystems and yeah. yeah. So I'm going to follow this up with uh, one more uh, in the same space. I, I've kind of read one of your papers, yeah. the one that uh, compares a data as capital and data as labor. Yeah. And I was just thinking like, can you consider a DAO as representing a data labor union? Uh, potentially, yes. Uh, I guess it depends what one uh, means precisely by a DAO. Some people's vision of a DAO is that it has no employees, no lawyers, no one doing more than just a little bit of thought to administer it. That I don't think is going to work very well because the whole role of a data labor union is because people find it impossible to know all the uses that are being made of their data, they need someone to actually negotiate those uses and to think through all of it, and you need some expertise for that. But on the other hand, if by a DAO you mean a legal structure with strongly protected um, democratic rights, uh, that I think starts to be a potential fit as long as it can also have employees who do various things. Um, Anish, actually first we had to ask him what is a data union? Uh, people might not know what is a data union. Yeah. <laughs> so the idea of a data union or a data coalition or a data cooperative is a uh, group of people and data that come together to collectively bargain to protect the economic and non-economic rights associated with those uh, data. And there are economic rights because data are used to train artificial intelligence. And those artificial intelligence systems are going to create economic value, or at least that's what's claimed. They're going to replace jobs and so forth. And yet they're trained on data that belongs 
that, that, that pertains to people and that's created by the activity of people who aren't being compensated for that value. And at the same time, those data in the process could be, according to the values of the community that generated that stuff, uh, abused. And labor unions formed in order to help protect people's rights to both the economic and non-economic value of their work. Uh, and similarly, we think unions around data, digital representations of people's personality that creates economic value need to form to protect those rights. So it's not actually just about, it's about the financial value, it's also just values. Uh, yes. What would happen if, uh, I mean- I'll give you an example, let me okay. give you an example. So um, imagine there's an African-American community that um, wants to make sure that they're able to use banking services uh, by making sure that their facial recognition technology is better because currently they're having trouble recognizing black faces, let's say. This is a big problem. There's a great paper about there's, this. There's a bias in all machine learning algorithms in that sense. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So they want to give their they want to give some their faces maybe with some compensation to help these things improve. On the other hand, they don't want their data to be used to train predictive policing protocols that look at faces on the street and figure out uh, where to send the police. Um, how can they sell their data for one use and not for the other use? Well, each one of them doing that on their own is not going to work because n no one's going to be able to read all the different ways that it could be used, negotiate the contract. So they need to band together to do that. So that's an example of a non-economic right that they might want to protect. Wow. So, so in a way, there, there are two ideas here. One is that this community probably of, let's say, millions of people or tens of thousands of people probably as a whole does have the resources to find a couple of machine learning engineers or just even hire them, right? Or maybe they have machine learning engineers among their own community yeah, that's what and I they just yeah. want to support them going mm -hmm. to college or earning a living, et cetera. Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, it's a, a pooled set of resources you can actually have. Yes. Uh, all the things you actually, I mean, given there's a large enough number, you could yeah. pretty much have a probability distribution or right. most everything. And, and another solution is what uh, Trent likes to talk about, bringing compute to data. So yeah. that kind of is one of the solutions that solves this problem of uh, how do you give access to your data without giving perpetual access? Yes. And I think once you've trained a model, uh, you have to ask who, who controls that model and how it's used. Yes. Mm -hmm. And it could be just that the union itself controls it, but in some cases you'll want others to control it but only if the union retains some rights, both financially and substantively over how that's used in the future so that you don't end up in the situation that I was describing before. So the, the question I, I had in my mind was literally, if you actually have data unions, and for example, taking the example that you described, so people with colored skin actually yeah. giving their data to train the machine learning algorithm. So you are describing two situations. One is uh, you know set of all people who use uh, face recognition have an improvement and the society itself has an improvement. On the downside, then there's this question of policing and the rest of them, they have better data to track people down, recognize them. So, in you were describing, you could actually have uh, all of them collaborating to, you know, enforce the governance. Yeah. In a situation where, you know, imagine there are no governments, 
what would you recommend could be the mechanism by which we could globally enforce such a thing because like if you think about it in a current situation you could actually think about certain populations being in certain parts of the world and as things evolve this is not just not going to be just of uh, skin color you know you could be segmented as you described in other uh, talks you have given it's like yeah. you could be a, a minority if you were sliced in particular dimension right how yeah. can these minorities have a say in enforcing well look i i, I don't think that governments actually are the primary enforcers of things even today even though we think of them that way the reality is if you have ever read jane jacobs yeah. she's a great urbanist and she talks about how what really keeps law and orders is eyes on the streets so she says that cities where interesting things are happening on the streets are always safe and the reason is because people look out their windows and look at what's happening on the street okay. and when people are looking out their windows and looking at what's happening on the street crime can't occur right and so the reality is most enforcement in almost all places is based on the values of a community only a small amount is actually done by the police and in the places that are most successful even more is done by the community so you know in norway and sweden there's a tiny number of police per person and actually in norway people are heavily armed and the police are not armed so actually it's it's it <laughs> most of the violence capacity doesn't lie with the police yeah. the police are just a coordinating device yeah. to help manage and administer some things but the but the enforcement actually comes from the shared values of the community so the more broadly shared a set of values is the more easily it j comes to just pervade people's expectations and and when there's no ambiguity about how people will behave then there's no violence interesting that's a very interesting perspective <laughs> so anish and i that's that's the trouble with having two hosts on a podcast like uh, we need to have like a corpus callosum between our brains <laughs> <laughs> a bridge <laughs> yes yes exactly so but you know i wanted to uh describe the problem that da data unions or data corporates want to solve and to do that i think we have to talk about what's the dystopian scenario of that we don't have data sovereignty we or, or at least a version of it I've personally heard a couple of labels, data feudalism, data colonization, data slavery. Uh, I've been even told by our marketing department I should not uh, mention <laughs> the word data slavery. But uh, in a way, that that is Surveillance what could capitalism. Surveillance capitalism, yes, yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so d d w which one of these, let's say, you think uh, is... Actually, it doesn't matter. The word doesn't matter. But what's, what's the dystopian case when... Uh, the visions like you and Jan Lanier have uh, don't come to... Well, I think that w what could end up happening is that if there's a very small number of people who has asymmetric access to data and can use it according to their narrow standards to hyper-optimize things, what ends up happening is it's very similar to sort of the Skynet or runaway AI type scenarios where there's some super narrow criteria which is accepted by some community. All these data are used to optimize that scenario. And in the process, everyone ends up getting turned into paper clips. Yeah, I mean, this is Nick Bostrom's paperclip optimization. So I was about yeah. to ask you this. It was like, it's very similar to what's actually happening in China. Yeah. So, you know, you could actually think of, uh, you know, a particular minority, ethnic minority that exists in China, which has been, you know, 
more how could i say uh, more exposed to the facial recognition yeah so you know that is an example of how things can go wrong and what i foresee for things to go really wrong is like when that's being enforced by other parts of the world that's just one example right now and there's the other side of this argument which is like you know and kind of you touched upon that as well so like if you go by the ethics you have a competitive disadvantage if there is somebody who doesn't give anything or doesn't give any concern about ethics they can do whatever they want right so there's this difference between uh, two sets yeah. of parties Th- this is a problem with the whole ethics discourse yeah. so i don't like the ethics way of talking about things i think that we need to outcompete the unethical systems we need to be better because pluralism works better than totalitarianism does and the competition with the soviet union proved that the competition with hitler's germany proved that um ultimately if you actually treat people as agents as co-creators the information that they have if you can bring the systems to them rather than delivering them to the systems it actually works better but you need to build systems that which is sometimes harder that are geared to going to the people rather than abstracting the people for the rulers and i think some of the more problematic systems you're describing which um show up in china social yep. credit the weaker th- yep. they, you know they also show up in a lot of silicon valley visions they show up in a lot of facebook's visions oh, yeah. they show up at google's visions a yes. lot and you know i the, to to organize and make useful the world's information that's a very scary mission right i mean that's not that's organizing people you know what i mean pretty much at uh, a yeah. meta level yes yeah exactly and so in in instead if we can build genuinely pluralistic systems i think in the end they'll work better but we've it's very easy to be pulled in to the more totalitarian view there when i was in college there was a guy running for um student council president who's had a slogan keep the good times rolling and the good stuff flowing while all the hard work is done by you know this guy right so that's that that's a tempting attitude it's an easy attitude but it ultimately is not as productive as something that genuinely gets the best capacities of everyone in the society working together because the truth is collective intelligence is much greater than um than unilateral uh, decision making if we can find a way to actually harness it thank you so you you mentioned something really interesting that uh, i guess differentiates you from purely meme based uh, celebrities <laughs> you t- <laughs> you t- <laughs> yeah I, i think of myself as sort of 95% meme based <laughs> but but, uh, but there is that other 5% of me you should never admit that one <laughs> <laughs> okay so uh, this was probably from your inner non meme person uh, that uh, you you are kind of moving on from some of the ideas in radical exchange 1.0 so yeah. so uh, one radical markets at least radical yeah. radical markets and and well, one way that i liked uh, that you talked about it was uh, how we have this spectrum from conversation to violence and somewhere in the middle is voting and and this this is the key thing that we have to solve how do we uh create systems that allow for more information to be uh moved from one community as you said one dumbbar number to another dumbbar yeah. number 
So uh, is this connection correct that like you had you made this discovery and then you went back to your own ideas and then well so so first of all um, the things I'm working on right now in improving radical exchange don't address the specific issue you talked about that's just one illustration of the ways in which the things that we've done so far are a start not a end they allow us to advance beyond you know if our if money and identity tokens that we currently have nation state and capitalism are like the telegraph maybe this move you know the stuff in radical exchange moves us to the telephone but there's still the television and video conferencing and virtual reality and many things yet to come and you know one example is what you described so quadratic voting is a system that allows people to express how strongly they feel about issues this can overcome some of the tyranny of the minority things but it does not majority but it does not overcome many of the other problems. So for example, just consider the following somewhat abstract mathematical problem. Imagine all of us know a single bit. And the truth that we all want to decide upon is like some very complicated set of ands and xors. The R1CS kind of situation. What? A zero knowledge proof kind of situation. Yeah, it's some, some very complicated function of all these numbers. Yeah. So imagine we now try to take a vote, whether it's quadratic voting or whatever else, from people based on what the outcome is. You're not going to do any better than 50-50. But if we have a way to converse with each other in a more sophisticated way, we can get the answer for sure. And so the problem is that a lot of our systems, even quadratic voting, can may we miss just, out on the opportunity to do this sort of nonlinear communication. Can we just add some commitment mechanisms to this? This this kind of ties into the question I had previously mentioned to you yeah. about identities. So this is question about uh, commitment and blinding, right? Yeah. In society, it actually works that way. So it's like, you know, how do you actually get somebody's reputation? You have an interaction with them. It's a commitment and reveal, right? They talk to you or say something to you, and then you have an interaction. That's a reveal function. And then you update the, you know, whatever value you actually had. So can we actually use something similar to actually do identities as well and to this class of problems? Well, uh, I hope so. Uh, I think that we need to, you know, look, if you think of communication technologies, telegraph, whatever, we keep getting a clearer and clearer representation of what it is for me to interact with you in person yep. over a long distance. Yes. Can we do the same thing for political economies? Can we simulate the ways that we govern ourselves in a group of friends, you know, that all know each other very well with people that we've never met? That, that I question. think, is the yeah. challenge. Yeah, that's a really hard question in yeah. that sense. Well, and I don't think we'll ever get there because, you know, we're never going to get there with representing in-person communication at long distances. But we can get closer and closer in big leaps, and I think that's what I hope we'll do. Um, I guess something that we didn't talk about is at the end, even if you have uh, lots of information, like much more than we have now, and if you have systems that can deal with that amount of information, you still need kind of a binary output and that binary output cannot be like a, a system that changes like you can't change every day right so i i read one of the very few sci-fi books that i've read in my life unfortunately is infomocracy oh I, yeah i just finished that yeah oh okay that's that's cool <laughs> yeah malk is an amazing person yeah, I, I, I really like some of the ideas of that book. Yeah. So you, it's actually nice to talk about it a little bit. Yeah. So uh, do, do, we, do we need that kind of word? Maybe you can tell us a little bit about the word in infomocracy because your memory is much fresher. Well, I, yeah, I just finished it. Uh -huh. I mean, 
the core conceit of infomocracy is about a global public good system that provides information to people and then in, in some sort of nonpartisan way and then a bunch of very small local democracies which elect people and then sort of the global government is determined by the outcomes of those local elections. Yep. Um, which I think is an interesting structure. It's not necessarily, I but think, there, there the best this, possible structure. Yeah, the but funny thing is, like, you move from one street to the other, and, like, now you're, <laughs> you have to wear a hijab. Like <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, right. So uh, that is interesting. I don't necessarily think that that's, like, quite the right direction to go in, but I think it's, an, I think it's interesting to imagine different ways we could organize things. Imagining is part of the solution. Rigorous science is another part of the solution, and, and these things need to go together. So, But I wanted to ask, do you see any existing, let's say, political system or even like ideas on blockchain for, uh, you know, uh, things like Aragon uh, who are closer to even, you know, implementing a piece of this future that we're talking about? Well, I think the probably information dense governance. The, the society that I most admire is probably Taiwan along this dimension. Audrey Tang, the minister of Taiwan is actually digital minister of Taiwan is actually here in Berlin with us and we, we spent much of the day working with her with German politicians. And um, they have a really impressive system that manages to use many of these mechanisms in very creative ways even beyond what we've been pushing at radical exchange in order to find consensus in a rich, high-dimensional way among many different people on a variety of public issues. I have this question for you, given you mentioned it. So there's the economic cost involved in getting consensus in a lot of these things. Yeah. So there's a trade-off, right? You can't actually have like a massive multidimensional uh, you know, interaction of any sense to get a, in terms of complexity, the time it takes to get the consensus is so long that the decision that you need to make will be already done in one sense. And secondly, the cost is also also increasing, right? So how do you actually get to this agreement? Okay, for well, I mean, I think, I think that that is what you're describing is precisely what makes it impossible okay. beyond the Dunbar number yeah. to have the rich social relations we have. So the question is, are there ways to use the technologies that we are developing uh, you know, things that are usually called artificial intelligence, so I don't like that term. Um, uh, uh, Data science. Technologies, <laughs> uh, information technology, graphs, etc., to facilitate much more rapid, long social distance communication um, to facilitate the sort of richness that we have in within the Dunbar number at much lower cost and much greater distance. Okay. I mean, I'm going to go back to this blockchain question. I know, you know, you, you've expressed your uh, skepticism about uh, the evolution, at least the short to medium term evolution of yeah. blockchain ecosystem. You know, what are the reasons why, you know, you are more skeptical, if well, I may choose that? There are some, there are some um, specific reasons, but I want to go to the deepest one, sure, which really cuts to the core of the idea. Yep. The, I think the core idea of blockchain is the notion of a global immutable state. Um, and as I mentioned before, it's ironic that that's the term. Um, and then the individual secured by a private key. 
These are the key notions, right? And I think this is a very both poor representation of what yeah. sociality is really like. Yeah. And more importantly, it's a representation that we've tried over and over and over again. The like conceit of we're going to bring the following new liberating structure to free everyone from all of the existing communities that they're indebted to and to give people the chance to be a truly liberated individual was the rhetoric that was used for the nation state. Yep. It was the rhetoric that was used for neoliberalism. It was the rhetoric God. that was used for God. <laughs> it was the rhetoric. I mean, it's like it's, it's, it's been tried over and over again. And the truth is that what leads to the individual being liberated and free is precisely not wiping away community. What leads to the individual being free is community becoming more and more complex and diverse, and therefore the individual having a diverse range of things they are able to participate in. So in the end, I think Hannah Arendt was right in saying that the logical outgrowth of that vision is totalitarianism, not individual liberation. Wow. Um, and so... I think Bitcoin maximalism would be totalitarian <laughs> if, if it ever really worked. Okay. Um, and so what we need instead to do is to build up more and more diverse opportunities for community rather than seeking to wipe away the things that currently exist. So I, I wanted to just follow up on one thing you mentioned because it's like, uh, you know, mapping an individual to a private key. I mean, Unfortunately, if you look at any identity schemes anywhere in the world, pretty much all of that, your phone, it actually maps you to a private key. Uh, your bank card actually does that. You, if you have an identity card of anything, your passport actually does that. And right now, it is how identity is actually mapped. Yeah. The only difference is the verification mechanism. So, you know, is identity is as good as a verification. So what's actually happening in your passport it's effectively they verify a whole bunch of things to make sure it's the claim that you are you is being verified. And there's a, that map is strongly bound. Somebody else actually puts a signature on top of it saying, you know, this is close binding. Is there anything of this kind of mechanism that we could borrow? And, and what I'm kind of referring to is, is there tools from the so-called centralized pool that we have been used to over the years that we might be able to borrow and lend well, it to? Well, I think the truth is that, you know, you give the example of the passport, and, and before that, there used to be things where the way you would determine someone's identity is you would hold like a trial, and you would have people come and testify about things. And the thing is, and, and the, the quote, the state did that. Yeah. But the thing is, it was like some judge who did that, and it was some individual people who testified to those things. Yes. And there, So why don't we just bypass the whole, quote, state thing? and not always use precisely the same data and that we have better information technology for it. We can automate those kind of trials effectively. We can have very rapid systems that contact out through networks to get trusted verifications of particular things. So like if I go into a bar, right now I just show my ID card to say I'm you know whatever, above the what, drinking age. Yeah. But that's not really necessary. You could have the bartender send an email to someone he knows who knows me and who knows for sure that I'm above 18, and the trust on that relationship could bear it rather than it going through the state. Now, 
email would be a little slow, but what if we had just a whole infrastructure that allowed very quickly for those messages of trust to pass along a social network? I think that's a much better vision um, for how we actually do better than, quote, the state does those things. It is it is beautiful, not just for... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, m maybe, do, do you have a formal, like, description of ISD? If Yeah. Yeah, so maybe you could tell us about that. Yeah, well, so the idea is that every person would have a personal data store that would record their, quote, private information. But the thing is that all of our private information, each individual bit, always pertains to other people as well. So my first kiss, you know, might be in my private data store, but hopefully there was someone else who participated in that and who therefore has it stored in, uh, in this case, her <laughs> personal data store. You just also invented something. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so uh, that should be a uh, networked thing. You, so we should have these personal data stores where each datum is in some sense shared, but the data store as a whole is private to me. And in fact, it's the set of all those sharing relationships that creates that sense of my individuality. This is and a question. And, ju just say, uh, yep. and the zero knowledge part was uh, the, the thing I said you invented. You don't need to know who was the person who participated in the first kiss. You just need to know the number is two and not one. And ideas like this are exactly what we need in you yeah. know, sovereign identity yeah. that doesn't reveal too much information. Yeah. The thing I was about to say was, uh, not zero knowledge proofs, but uh, the more the question around, like the, it's kind of information leakage, right? So in this case, uh, pretty much I can flip the argument around and say, if I know, if there are two people involved, if I know one, then I definitely know the other, right? So if you have a graph and if you actually start revealing information, privacy as a concept is going to disappear. Oh, I, I actually think privacy can get much, much stronger in this world. Okay, so, you so need like, to explain. Let's go back to what Nima was saying. So suppose that what I want to do is um, prove that I'm a unique person. And uh, what, and, and nothing else. Yeah, I don't want to give anything else away. Yeah. So I'm enrolling to vote. They don't want anyone double voting. We want to do a digital version of putting ink on your finger, mm. right? So what do I do? I ask, you, you, you who are enrolling me, ask me at the following randomly chosen 10 dates in the past, where were you? It's what now, I described as the uh, commit and reveal. Essentially, you ask you to come ask the person to commit for this penny mm. data, and then you but, do the No, I think it's more complex as well. Yeah. So what would happen is for each one of those dates, you would say, "Here's where I was," mm. right? Then each one of those data would be verified by someone who was there with me when I was in that place. Okay. Once all those things are verified, you actually right? don't need to do that. Uh, you only need to do that when certain, uh, in certain instances. That's what I describe as blinding. So if you imagine you have a trust, a very high level of trust. Yeah. In this instance, we trust you, right? Yeah. So you say it to us and you have 100% trust. Yeah. So you give us 10, uh, 10 uh, yeah. samples. And in this case, all we require is just that you give 10 samples. And when we have lower levels of trust, we might start unblinding. No, no, I, I agree. But yeah. what, I, what I'm saying is that suppose someone is enrolling and I want to allow any unique human to enroll. Yeah in kind of a quote permissionless way, but I don't yeah. want to allow, um, but I don't want to allow bots to enroll. Okay. So then what I can do is ask you these 10 things. You get those verified by other people that you were 
in those things that are actually trusted. And then someone else comes to enroll. What do I ask them for? Do I ask them for their name? Do I ask them their social? No, I just ask them those 10 questions. But those 10 questions are like grains of sand by the ocean. I mean, they tell almost nothing about, about here's, you, right? Oh, here, here's yeah. the issue, Glenn. I, I'm now being the anish in this part. Yeah. So uh, actually, I thought you wanted to talk about what I'm going to say. Uh, probably that n number of grains of sand information, if there is a global graph of all the people's you know, information of where they are, you could be uniquely identified who you are oh, with but, some but, accuracy but is, just based on but that. But there is no global thing of that. So all your data is stored in your personal data store, and in each context you identify yourself with 10 grains of sand. But the thing is the 10 grains of sand that you use in each context are completely different than the other grains of sand. And so therefore, uh -huh, uh -huh. the real reason why you're uniquely identifiable by things is we reuse the same data over and over and over again in different contexts. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, but, but so like, the assumption like Here's is a way to think about it. Is like think of my face. Uh -huh. If I'm constantly using my face, then anytime you see my face, it's you know get it's captured me. Up. Yeah. But imagine if instead every person who saw me saw 10 randomly chosen <laughs> of the 1 million pixels that make up the image of my face. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Now, based on that, they could uniquely tell that this was me versus something else, as long as with, they always see With a, with a probability. With, with a, a probability. With, high prob with yeah. very high probability, yeah. right? Yeah. But, but, um, but no two different people would see the same Glenn, right? So at least in principle, there's a way for me to be totally uniquely identified to any person in a very verifiable way but at the same time, no one sees me. Yeah, and also it requires the aggregator on top to not be Google. To, well, to and, be and many no, no, different no, no, services. No, 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 not just not Google. It, there shouldn't be an aggregator on top. There shouldn't be a protocol on top. What I actually think there should be is personal data stores with local graph search algorithms where all this communication happens just by sending messages to friends and friends propagating to friends and beyond the first level, encrypted. Okay, mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you this. Now I'm going to be Anish, so I'm yeah. going to ask the question. And, and it's kind of one of our last questions. Okay, so bootstrapping such a Anish. thing would be the real, real That hard is the hardest. Yeah. So, so what you have to do is you have to find a community that is being really poorly served by current things and that therefore really wants to adopt something like this. Could be an indigenous community that doesn't want to be seen by the state. Could be um, communities that have very sensitive information that they don't want to have routinized and shared in things, and, and therefore they want to... In, in, so you need to find someone to start who has really high value from it yeah. and then propagate gradually up from it. That's what Facebook really did with college students, right? Yeah. So um, unfortunately, you can't drop your mic. It's it's a mic on the stand. <laughs> but the, the last, that last one, the thing you said was amazing. It was a mic drop moment. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you if you want to... Mm, share any message I, I know you're going to give this talk tomorrow about the new directions updates about radical exchange yeah. radical markets maybe a brief version of that my, my, so my, my closing message is is sort of always some version of a, a pitch to get involved with radical exchange because we are a social movement that's trying to fix a lot of the problems that we're facing as society and we'll only succeed if we have many people with diverse skills involved artists entrepreneurs uh, intellectuals, uh, activists, people in government, etc. And I think we need all those people because if we're going to improve the way we organize ourselves in the way that we've improved our communications technologies, moving from the telegraph to the telephone, whatever, that's only possible, technology only advances 
through that combination of imagination, people organizing themselves, people experimenting. That's how technology advances. It can't just be a small group of techno-weenies pushing things forward. And um, so I really hope that uh, people out there will be inspired to work with us on uh, building these types of solutions. Thank, thank you. you, Glenn. Yeah, we have one audience question from, from, yes. from Beth McCarthy. So Who's please, another Beth. good friend. <laughs> Hi. So uh, I was wondering last year, it was really awesome after the paper came out about quadratic voting. Yeah. Um, I noticed that there were so many you know, developers and technical people in the space really galvanized to solve the kind of social justice issues that yeah. I had never previously heard people discussing in yeah. those settings. So I was wondering um, what are some of the kind of patterns or trends you've observed over the past year of, you know, people building things using quadratic voting that are able to serve, you know, the commons and the collective in yeah. exciting ways. Oh, that's great a question. So um, the Volt Party here in Germany, which is one of the really interesting responses to populism, it's like a pan-European centrist party, um, used it to define their platform, which was really cool. The Colorado State Legislature used it to allocate their budget. And it turns out that the number one issue turned out to be equal pay for uh, women. So that was really an interesting outcome of that. Um, in Taiwan, quadratic voting was used to identify the um, top five uh, best um, sort of participatory uses of technology, um, including things like uh, helping with clean water and, and clean air um, that were awarded uh, from the president a prize which was just a projectable version of the president giving them the prize so it's like a self-referential thing right but the thing is that projecting that mobilizes resources right so it was able to allow these best projects that emerge from communities to actually mobilize the resources that they need to support them um so those are some interesting examples but there's been many many others so thank you beth yeah uh, we should have asked this question. Thank you for being here. Uh, Glenn, what is your Twitter handle? I guess everyone knows, but... At Glenn Weil, and there's at Rad Exchange, which is the organization I founded. Okay, so thanks to Ocean, thanks to Glenn and Jen from thanks Radical Exchange. All. Yes, yes, no worries. See you next week. Bye.